0: Kathy said, my name's Elliot. I'm uh, the Connection Pastor here. And before we get started with today's message, I just wanted to give you guys a heads up, a little update on Bevan, our senior pastor. As you know from last week, he was getting eye surgery this past Monday. Everything went well. He wanted me to extend a thank you to you for praying on his behalf. And so I'm going to be filling in this week, and then he'll be back with us um, next Sunday picking the series up. Now, what we're doing in this um, series of messages called Accelerate is we're taking a look at, um, we're kind of asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritually fit? If we're going to grow, what's it going to take for us to grow? And there's a term that the Bible uses, and it's the term godly, that describes being spiritually fit. This is what it says in First Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. It says, Train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now being godly, when the Bible talks about this idea, it has the idea of you view your life through God's eyes. You view the challenges you face, you view what's going on in the world around you, you see it as God does from his perspective. But you also, when it comes to your kind of your value list, your order of priority, what's most important to you in life, your list lines up with what God says the list should be, and it lines up with this is the order of what's most important according to God. That's what it means to be godly. Now, godliness doesn't just happen, it's kind of like being physically fit. I mean, you don't go to bed out of shape and then wake up the next morning and suddenly, oh man, I'm ready, you know, I could take on a marathon, I could do a CrossFit workout. That doesn't just happen. I mean, if we want to be physically fit, we've got to involve some kind of training. We've got to change the habits of our lives. It's the same thing when it comes to godliness with being spiritually fit. If we just kind of sit back and, you know, take the front porch rocking chair approach and we're we're passive and just kind of let it happen, well, we're not going to become godly. Godliness doesn't happen until we get involved and we start to take action. And so what God has done to help us is He's identified some different habits and practices and tools that we can take and we can use so that we can become godly. So that's what we're looking at in this series. What, what can we do to kind of accelerate this spiritual growth? So last week, Bevan took a look at the tool of prayer and the habit of praying, and he explained how as we pray, and we make that a habit in our life, how that shapes us and that helps us grow. And today what we're going to be looking at is the tool of church and the habit of gathering. And we're going to look at why gathering together like this and in small groups is so important to our lives. Why is this? How is God going to use this to help us grow? And it kind of brings up a question that I think a lot of people ask, and it's, well, why, why is this important in the first place? I mean, why? I mean there's several hundred of you in this room right now. I mean, why do we come together in these large groups on Sunday mornings? Why? Why can't I just listen to a podcast in my car on the way to work? I mean, that's a lot more convenient. It would save a lot of time. If the speaker's boring or slow, I can just speed him up, you know, and then get more out of my morning commute. I mean, why can't we just do that? Why why isn't that enough? Or You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's over 500 of you that meet in our midweek growth groups, the small groups that we do. Do the 500 of you that meet, do you just need more to add to your schedule? Are you just, you know, you have nothing else to do, so you know what, I guess I might as well hang out with some people. Do you just need more on your plate? Are we just offering this so people will have entertainment? I mean, is that why we do all these different activities? I mean, Kathy in the announcements listed all of these things that we're going to do. Is it just for entertainment? Is it just to kind of, you know, we're treating you guys kind of like teenagers, just keep you out of trouble. If we give you enough positive activities, you won't get in trouble. I mean, why do we do this stuff? Why, why can't on, you know, one day a week, why can't you just watch a preacher on TV and call it good? Why, why isn't that enough? Why can't you just sit down in the privacy of your home? You don't have to get dressed up. You don't have to smell good, you know, nobody's around. You can just sit in front of your TV and, oh, I'm good. I got my God on for the week, you know, I'm good to go. Why is it that, that what we do is so important? Well, Jesus actually points to this when he uses the word church. And what Jesus says is when he uses this word church, he's using a familiar word. He didn't make up this word. He used a word when he used it, the people listening to him, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And it's the word ekklesia, and it's a word that literally means those called out to assemble. So when he speaks about the church, he's referring to something that his audience heard, and they instantly were like, oh yeah, we know what that is. And see, what, what this was in Jesus' day is they didn't have some of the you know, technologies that we have, and so what would happen is they would have a, a messenger would come, or maybe a herald would come, and he was bringing some important news. Maybe it was something from the king. Maybe it was an update on a law, or it was information on how a battle was going. And he would come into a city or a region, and the people would, they would assemble. They would gather together because they knew that it was really important, and that was the term ecclesia. They would be this big assembly, and everyone would come together. So when Jesus talks about establishing his church, what he's saying is, I'm calling people to assemble together to come together in a large group for a specific reason. See, whenever God calls us to be a Christian in the first place, it's, it's initiated by him. He, he calls us into a relationship with him. But it doesn't just stop with me and Jesus. It doesn't just stop with me you know, in my home, doing my devotions, meditating. He, he calls me to an assembly. He calls me to come together with others. And the reason that he does that is the essence of what a church is, is not limited to the dissemination of information. It's not just about, you know, telling people something. You know, if that was the case, then, you know, a podcast or TV would do it. But the essence of a church is much bigger than that. You see, when when Jesus calls us to assemble, he's calling us to something that requires a gathering to accomplish. There are certain things that they're just, they're not going to happen if we don't make gathering a habit. So this morning, we're going to look at what those are. What are the reasons that we're supposed to gather? There's a passage in uh, the book of Hebrews that we're going to look at. And um, this book, Hebrews, it's written to a group of people. And for a set of different circumstances, they've become discouraged about some different areas of life. And one of the things that some of them were doing and others were tempted to do because of what they were experiencing was to stop gathering together, to stop meeting together, coming together in this assembly. And so this letter is written to them to explain to them why this is so important. So here's what it says, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 22. It says this, it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies Washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Notice how three times in this passage, in this set of verses, it says, Let us. Let us, three times. And each time it says, let us, it's followed by something that we are strongly urged to do. Now, it doesn't say you. It doesn't say you do this thing. It says, let us. And the point is, is this is not speaking to the individual. This isn't speaking just to a person on their own. This is speaking to the group, the collective, all of us together. It's making the point that if these three things that are identified are going to happen, it's going to take all of us together to make that happen. It's not going to happen on our own. This is why towards the end of the passage, it says not giving up meeting together. It's just further driving that point home that, that what God wants to see accomplished, if we quit meeting together, it's not going to happen. So when we come together, this is what should happen. So the first reason to gather is in the first verse, verse 22. The first reason to gather is together we strengthen our faith. It's what it says in verse 22. It says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Together, we strengthen our faith. What happens when you draw near to God, when you get close to him? Well, what happens is, is your faith is strengthened. But what's interesting about that is to draw near to God in the first place It requires faith, and it requires faith for several reasons. First of all, drawing near to God requires faith because God's invisible. We can't see him, and so it takes faith to believe in him. I mean, now, it's not like a blind, foolish faith where it's just like, okay, we're just kind of hoping he's out there and real. I mean, there's plenty of evidence and facts that point to the fact that there is someone behind all of this, and then when you study who Jesus Christ is, it it just further solidifies that. And that's actually a good thing to do. If you have questions about the existence of God, dive into it. That's a good use of your time. But he is invisible. So that means that to draw near to him requires faith. And then in addition to that, drawing near to him means that you have to believe you can actually have a relationship with him. It's not enough to just say, oh, okay, he's real, he exists. Now drawing near means that, okay, no, he's real and he exists, but I can actually have a relationship with this real personal God. That's kind of what's highlighted by the two phrases at the back half of this verse, where it describes our hearts as being sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. What this is describing is what Jesus has done. What, what, what everyone carries around inside of them is guilt over the wrong that they've done. They might not even be able to identify where this guilt comes from or exactly what they've done wrong, but we, we, can, I, we can say, okay, I know I've done some wrong, but then there's something else that's inside of me, some guilt that's eating at me. Well, what Jesus has done is in him coming and all the work that he did while he was here, he cleanses us of that. He removes that guilt. That, that guilt is because of the fact that we have distanced ourselves from God. So in Jesus coming, he, he forgives that guilt, he cleanses us, so now we can actually have a relationship with God. And then the next thing that it says, it says, in having our bodies washed with pure water. What this is, is this is a reference to baptism. I mean, I know some of you, when you were coming into this service, you saw the baptism taking place after the first service. And then after this one, we're going to have another large baptism outside on center court. And one of the ways that we describe baptism is it's kind of like what takes place in a marriage ceremony. I mean, when my wife and I got married, I, I took a ring and I put it on her finger. And that ring is a public statement to everybody else that she is now a member of my family and we're in a unique relationship. That's what that ring is stating. When a person gets baptized, the public statement to everybody else is, I'm in a relationship with God and I'm a member of his family. That's the statement that baptism makes. So because of what Jesus has done, we can now approach God without a guilty conscience. And because we're members of his family, we know that when we go to him, we can actually relate to him. And we can, in fact, draw near to him. But what's interesting is on our own, even though we know this, our faith is challenged and tested. And we start to have doubts and questions creep in. We, we start to have questions like, you know, is this just a big waste of time? You know, I can't, I can't see this God that I'm relating to. I know the Bible says all this stuff, but am I just wasting my time? Or we start to ask questions like, well, could Jesus really love me? I mean, I, you know, I know it says he died on the cross for me, but, I mean, maybe that just includes the really good people, you know, the Mother Teresas of the world that go and do all this amazing stuff. But what, I haven't done that much amazing stuff. I still mess up. Could God really love me? You know, could, could what Jesus did, could that really cover the wrong that I've done? I mean, does God really want to have a relationship with me? And what will happen over time to a person, to any of us, is these doubts and these questions, they'll eat at us, and they'll decay our faith. They will, brick by brick, essentially tear us down. So what God said is he said, I want you to come together, gather, because it's in a gathering where your faith is strengthened. Now, I've been a part of Seabreeze now for nine years. The first about five years, I was just like many of you, just a member of the church. But for the last four years or so, I've come on staff, and so my, my job has changed. But over that nine-year period, I've seen some pretty awesome stuff take place. And specifically, there's a few individuals that c- consistently come to mind, and I, I knew them really well before they became Christians. And their lives, it was just, they were just all over the place. I mean, it was drugs, it was an insane amount of debt, it was broken relationships, it was anger, they couldn't keep a job. It was, you know, they were just all over the place. But then they met Jesus, and then change started to take place. And over time, they've been completely transformed. I mean, for some of them, you, you meet them now, and you hear the stories about their past, and you don't even believe it. You're like, no way that this guy could be that guy. I mean, in fact, there was a girl, a young woman, who recently started coming around, and she knew one of these guys in the past. And the comment that she made to me was she said, when I saw how much he had changed, I realized there was something going on there, and I needed to be a part of it. There was another friend uh, at his wedding. He, he, it was amazing what Jesus has done in his life, but at his wedding, um, his brother was the best man. His brother gave the uh, speech at the uh, reception. And when he did, the comment that he made, his brother's not a Christian, and the comment that he made was, ever since you got involved with that group, you've become a different person, and it's completely for the better. And what's cool for a guy like me is I've, I've gotten a, a front-row view of this change take place, this undeniable transformation. And as we've consistently drawn near to God over time together, now instead of it just being kind of me and Jesus on my own, I actually have evidence of God showing up in other people's lives in very very tangible, practical ways. I, it's not just me saying, yeah, I believe God's real. I know what the Bible says. It's all of that. And then it's, and also, I, I, I saw this happen in this person's life. I saw God radically transform them, and I cannot deny that. And honestly, if, if I don't make gathering a habit, drawing near to God with a group of people a habit, I miss out on those opportunities to see God work in ways that are really unimaginable. So it says we gather that we get to see God do stuff that, that we couldn't imagine, but we really get to see him show up in a lot of ways in physical form as he works in people's lives, and as we see that, Our faith is strengthened. So God knew that our faith would be tested. He knew that doubts would creep in, so he gave us the church. He gave us a regular assembling together so that our faith could be strengthened. Another reason for gathering in this passage is together we fix our eyes, is what it says in verse 23. It says this, it says, "'Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful.'" Now, an interesting thing about us is we need hope. Hope is something out in front of us. It's something in the future that we move towards. Hope for a person functions similar to fuel in a car. If a car has fuel, that car is going to move. If a car runs out of gas, the car stops moving. Same thing, kind of the same principles at work in our lives. When a person has hope, they move. But then when a person runs out of hope or when they lose hope, it can be a very sad thing to watch. But what's interesting about hope is it's not limited to we just put our hope in one or two things. There's really an endless opportunity of stuff that we could put our hope in. There's all kinds of stuff around us to put our hope in. And in a sense, we're kind of like distracted drivers when it comes to hope. We just kind of swerve from one thing to the next. I mean, this is kind of you know how it works for me when I drive down PCH. And my wife will attest to this because on more than one occasion, she very lovingly reminds me to keep my eyes on the road Because I'm driving down PCH, and I mean, just like this last Friday, you know, the Santa Ana winds are blowing, and these big waves are rolling in, and there's mist blowing off the top of the waves, and there's a few guys out there, and the whole time I'm driving, I'm like, does he make it? Is he going to make it? You know? (laughs) And so I'm looking at the waves. I'm not looking at the road. Well, inevitably, what's going to happen if I start looking at the waves? I'm going to start to head in that direction. I'm going to start to swerve. Well, that's how we work. Whatever we're looking at is what we're going to head towards. And the way we work is we look at what we put our hope in. If you want to know what somebody put their hope in, just look at where they're headed. Their life will tell you because they can't help but head off in that direction based on what they're looking at. And we put our hope in stuff because it promises something that we want. So money, for example. I mean, you know, green pieces of paper, numbers in a bank account. The reason we put our hope in that is because there's promises attached to that money and we want those promises. Promises of, you know, if we have enough money, well, we can, you know, have freedom and do whatever we want. There will be security, there will be ease, there will be protection, there will be comfort. Whatever it is, there's promises attached to that, and we want that, so we put our hope in that. And we try to get it, and we head off in that direction. Or maybe it's a relationship. The relationship promises something. If, you know, if I could be in this relationship, if I could have this person, well, then the promise is I'll feel loved. I'll be complete. I'll be fulfilled. There'll be joy. There'll be sad. whatever it is. And so there's some promise, and so we head off in this direction. And if you watch us, what we're doing is we're just kind of swerving from one thing to the next as we move through life. And what happens is we head off towards something, and then we realize, oh, well, all those promises that it made, it, it actually can't back up those promises. So then we turn, and we swerve towards something else over here, and well, we realize, oh, it actually can't make those, you know, can't keep those promises. And so then we swerve. So that's why the verse says, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the confession of our hope because he who promised is faithful. What is that saying? That's saying, if he who promised is faithful, so God's never gonna fail us, God's never gonna let us down. God's nothing's going to happen to you where when you're following God, he's going to kind of pull the carpet out from under you and you're just going to be sitting there disappointed. See, that's what happens with all these false hopes that we chase in life, that we serve, swerve between. When, when we go after them and we realize that they can't fulfill the promises that they've made, that causes disappointment in life. So what does it mean if you're, if you're holding fast to a hope that will never disappoint you, and it's going to keep its promises, that means that you can can fix your eyes on Jesus and know that this isn't going to be a waste of time. But just like any of us, on our own, the stuff in life, it's way too powerful for us to avoid putting our hope in it and believing its promises if we're left on our own. On our own, we're going to believe these promises. So we're going to turn our eyes, we're going to fix on them, and we're going to start to swerve. So what does God say? He says, let us. Let's come together and let's remember that the only one who can make promises that won't be broken is God. So let's fix our eyes. That's what happens. That's one of the results that takes place as we gather in a group. Another result of gathering in the group is together we start to love. That's what it says in verse 24 of this passage says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, this kind of brings up an interesting question. How do you spur a horse to action? Well, you got to be close enough to it to dig your heels into its ribcage. Now, we're smarter than horses. We don't need people walking around kicking us in the ribs to get us to start doing stuff. And we're more complex than horses. We don't all respond to the same proddings. So what's the point that this verse is making? Well, it's making the point that we need people close enough to us who know us well enough who can help us actually start to get moving to start loving and start doing good. I mean, I'll just use myself as an example. On my own ease and comfort, you know, the life of luxury, the, you know, eternal vacation, man, that sounds really good. It does. It does inconveniencing myself, going out of my way, serving other people, that really doesn't sound that good. I'm kind of like a horse in a pasture. I just want to hang out, frolic, you know, eat some grass, take some naps. I don't really want to start moving and doing this work. That's why the horse needs to be spurred. That's why I need people around me who will help me start to take action and start loving the way that God wants me to. See, what's interesting about this whole gathering thing is in a group like this, we come together in a large group like this, this is, this is an essential part of what we do as a church. This is very important. I mean, it's in a group like this where we come together and truths about God are communicated. And we spend time and we sing songs and we worship God. It's incredibly important. I mean where in a room like this, you can look around and you can see people who, they've come here because they believe God's real and they want to honor him with their lives. Our faith can be strengthened as we see that take place. We can re- be reminded that when it comes to hope, there's only one person that we can fix our eyes on who will actually fulfill the promises that he makes. Our eyes can be fixed on him. But in a, in a group like this, real deep change in a large gathering like this, it doesn't happen in a large gathering like this. See, in a large gathering like this, whoever's speaking can say stuff, and you can sit there, and you can nod your heads, and, hmm, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. But the ideas and the truths that are presented, they really kind of exist in our brain in theory form. We can nod our head. We can agree. We can, you know, the deep size, Hmm, yeah. But it's just kind of in theory form. It's not real to us until it makes its way from our brain, through our body, and shows up in action. When we take the ideas and we actually start to act on them, that's when they become a reality for us, specifically when it comes to love. And when you think about how do you love like Jesus loved, specifically that one in, in particular is interesting because Jesus, in the way that he loved, it was kind of shocking. It was extreme, it is a very unnatural thing for us to do. I mean, just look at what Jesus himself says, his expectation of us. John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. And then he says this, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So he's not saying, you know, you know it would be nice if you did this, if you occasionally did this, if it just kind of you know, every once in a while showed up in your life. No, he's saying, I mean, this is a command, As I have, so you must. This is an expectation. When people look at your life, they actually see the the way that I loved people. And then, well, how did Jesus love? Well, he inconvenienced himself for our benefit. He went out of his way for our good. He sacrificed for us. So far as to give his life for us. And he put our goals and interests above his own. And according to Jesus' love, the way that he loved, it's not just a strong feeling towards somebody. It's not just kind of random good stuff that you might do for them. But it's you get in the routine of viewing and treating this person as more important than yourself. You actually love them, and that's the pattern of who you are. Again, me on my own, I can sit here and I can say, man, what a great talk on love you know, love your neighbor. That's right. Let's do it, you know. But then to actually in everyday real life, to actually start to love people, kind of like that horse in the pasture, you know. I need to be spurred to action. I've got to be moved to start loving. I mean, I've got to have people around me who help me take that idea and actually start to apply it. Just this last week, I was getting time with somebody from the church here, and I was explaining some different um, challenges that I was facing, some kind of some puzzles I was trying to figure out in life, you could say. And as I was explaining this to my friend, he, um, he brought up a message that Bevan had given. And he brought up this message, and I remembered the message because there was something that stood out in it that we had both talked about. And then as he's talking about this message, he asked me the question. He like, well, Elliot, do you... Do you think that this would be an opportunity to actually, you know, take what Bevan was talking about and maybe apply it in that situation? And he he very gently and very kindly helped me see how I could love in this specific situation. Now he's explaining this all to me, and he's, you know, kind of, you know, he's not saying, you know, oh, you're a terrible person, but he's asking me questions and hey, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? And as he's saying this to me, my attitude, honestly, in that moment was not like wow, this is so good. You know, he's helping me think of something I hadn't thought of. It kind of felt like a kick to the ribs. I kind of was sitting there, and I was like, wow, what a great way to start the day. Geez, man, like, could we have waited a little longer? But I realized that it had existed as an idea for me. But he helped me see how in everyday practical life, well, here's an example where that should actually start to show up. And even over the short period of time since he shared that to me that I've had to kind of start to do that, i realized that, wow, he was exactly right. And what he said has helped a ton in the situation. And I can see how this is actually what Jesus was talking about. But on my own, if I don't have people around me who know me and can help me start moving, well, then it's just going to exist up here. You know, I can nod, I can agree, but it's, it's, in, it's when we get together with people and we come together and say, yeah, that, that's, that is how Jesus wants us to live. And then when we're surrounded by people who actually know us well enough that they can start to say, well, I think this might be an area where you could actually take that and apply that. That's where we start to love. Because see, God knew that on, on my own, I wasn't going to do, I'm not going to do, what it takes for me to love people the way that he wants me to. And so what does he say? He says, gather together. Let us come together in an, in an assembly, in a gathering. Get people around you who, who actually are thinking about you, and you're thinking about them, and, and you're trying to figure out how do we get each other to start moving and to start loving the same way that Jesus did. Without that, there is no way we're going to accomplish what God wants us to in the world. On our own, we can feel strongly. We might randomly do it, but to make it a pattern of our life where when people look at us, they say, wow, that person really is trying to love like Jesus. That's a result of being a part of the group. That's a result of making the habit of gathering routine. It doesn't happen if we're just on our own. It's interesting to me how in the last verse of this passage, how it's summed up, it says this. After it encourages us not to stop meeting together and to encourage one another, it says this. It says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Meet together all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the day approaching, that refers to either Jesus coming back or us dying and going to meeting God. So essentially, it refers to our life on earth ending. So as long as we are alive here on earth, will we ever outgrow the need to gather regularly with the church? No. Will we ever move beyond the need to participate in this habit of gathering? Not according to this. It actually says, and all the more. So it's saying that actually it's going to increase. As long as we're alive, it's not like, you know, oh, you know, I was a part, I did it for five years, you know, I'm good, I I put in my time, I can move on. No, it's saying this is a habit that you need to prioritize as long as you're there. As long as you're on earth breathing, this is a really big deal. And the reason is, is just like we've looked at, as long as we're alive on earth, our faith is going to need to be strengthened. Doubts are going to challenge our faith. We need to gather with others to strengthen our faith. And when we come together with others, we can stop the swerving. We can be reminded that there is only one true hope, one thing that we can fix our eyes on that will never let us down. And it's in the group that we're reminded of that. And we're, we're kind of safeguarding ourselves from getting caught up in these false hopes that surround us. And it's in the group when we come together with other people that the ideas that we receive and the truth in the Bible that jumps out at us actually starts to move from just our mind through our body and actually shows up in our life in action, and we start loving people. That's what happens is being a part of the group. So again, this passage says, I'm going to read it again, Hebrews 10. It says, "...let us together gather, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings." having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us come together and gather so that we can hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. We will never be disappointed. And let us come together and gather so that we can consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together. Not neglecting this habit as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If you'll join me, we'll pray. God, I thank you that you initiated a relationship with us, that you are the one who had the plan. You, Father, are the one who sent Jesus. Jesus, you're the one that opened the door for us to have a relationship. And then, God, I thank you that you didn't just leave it there, but you called us to be a part of something bigger, to be a part of a church, a a local gathering, an assembly, where we come together and, God, the doubts that we encounter throughout the week, our faith can be strengthened because even though, God, you are invisible, we get to see your handiwork all around us. We get to see you show up in regular, real ways in the lives of the people around us. And God, in the gathering, you remind us that you're the only one that we can put our hope in and you are the only one that will never let us down. And God, it's in the gathering where we really start to love the way that you want us to love. So I thank you for not leaving us on our own where we can get sidetracked or eaten up by this stuff or, or miss out on doing what you want us to do. But you've given something that we can make it a regular habit so that we can be a part of what you're doing, so that we can grow, so that we can become spiritually fit, see the world the way you do, value what you value, and be about what you're doing. So God, I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.